Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This, with a quick recommendation. Every holiday weekend comes with a lot of waiting traffic, airport security lines. And so while you're waiting, why don't you just binge on How I Built This? Each episode, I speak with a founder of a company who has an incredible story of how it all began. You can find How I Built This on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Greta Gerwig, the actress, just wrote and directed her first feature-length film. It's called Lady Bird. It's a wonderful movie. We're going to talk about it a bunch in just a minute. But this is really, really important. So if you grew up in California, you probably know this already, but In fourth grade here, you learn about state history, uh, the Gold Rush, Junipero Serra, the Chumash people. Well, my producer Kevin learned about the Chumash. I learned about the Miwoks. Uh, It's kind of a rite of passage. There's always some big project in the middle of it. Uh, A lot of people make models of missions. Some people get a trip on a boat. Greta grew up in Sacramento, which is the capital of California, and Sacramento elementary schools do not mess around. And then everybody got in covered wagons, and we went from our elementary school all the way downtown, and then we stayed in Sutter's Fort that night, and we all slept outside. I We had to make our own food, and one of it, you had to kill a chicken and then de-gut it. Dang, I just had to learn some sea shanties. It's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Greta about how she turned her childhood in Sacramento into a really compelling movie. She says she worked really hard to get the tone of the movie right. It's funny, but it's also, there's also something else. It happens a few times in the movie where the thing that made you laugh the first time, the second time when it comes back around, it's very painful. And it's almost the reverse of pain plus time equals comedy. In my movie, it's um, comedy plus time equals pain. (laughs) 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 It's like you laughed at it once, but you sure won't be laughing at it the next time it comes. Then I'll talk with Lee Unkrich. He directed the new Pixar movie, Coco. It's got a lot of other impressive credits, too. He directed Toy Story 3. He worked on Finding Nemo and A Bug's Life. And his first directing gig was on the USA Network television classic, Silk Stockings. Back then, Pixar was just kind of his sidekick. They had promised me an opportunity to direct an episode, so when I started working on Toy Story, I let them know that there was going to come a time where I was going to have to duck down to San Diego to go shoot this episode of Silk Stockings, which I, I did. So I was right in the middle of Wiz and Buddy land. Did I just say Wiz and Buddy? Yeah, wow. you did. <laughs> then, E.B. White's other perfect literary work about a pig. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've heard of Greta Gerwig before, you probably know her as an actor. She starred in the Noah Baumbach movie, Frances Ha, which she also co-wrote. Last year, she had parts in Oscar contenders like Jackie and 20th Century Women. Now she's written and directed a movie of her own. It's called Lady Bird, and it's absolutely one of my favorite movies of the year. It's basically a coming-of-age story. The protagonist is named Christine McPherson, but she calls herself and asks others to call her Lady Bird. She's played by Saoirse Ronan brilliantly. She lives in Sacramento, and the whole movie is set in 2002. So it's basically a period piece from right after 9-11. The movie doesn't have much grand narrative. It is basically an accretion of perfect details, little emotional moments Um, Things going on in the background, interchanges between characters that feel so vivid and real that you almost forget you're watching a movie. One of the most captivating parts is Lady Bird's relationship with her mom, Marion, who's played by Laurie Metcalf, who's totally amazing. It's intense. It's a little strained sometimes. but You can tell that the two of them really love each other. In this scene from the beginning of the movie, she and Lady Bird are driving and they're falling into a fight. 
I want to go where culture is, like, like how New in the York, world did I raise such or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom, you can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird, like Christine. you said you would. Just you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up. <laughs> Greta Gerwig, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, that's uh, every time I listen to that, I'm just, I just think, God, they're so good. They're just so good <laughs> and when they're talking over each other and just they, they're just relentless. Well, I think also you have to. It, it takes an actress as gifted as Laurie Metcalf mm. to nail that joke without breaking the actual emotional stakes of the scene. No, she <laughs> the means joke it. up and then to jail. <laughs> and, 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 and she has this quality of like, she's just so frustrated she's coming up with this absurdist thing on the spot. Um, because I think sometimes when you're overwhelmed by anger or in the middle of a fight, a fight, you find something coming out of your mouth that you have absolutely no idea where it came from and no justification for. I feel like when I was 17 years old, I had more or less completely emotionally shut down with my parents for like a, at least a year and a half before, like around mm. 15 or 16. Mm. I was like, well, I'm drawing the line here. Right. I no yeah. longer will engage with you as a human being. Mm. My wife, who I knew when we were that age, she went through an in, incredibly intense period with her mother, who's a wonderful woman. Right. Um, and my wife is also great. Uh, you'd like her. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure I'd like her and her mother. <laughs> but uh, they were like, it was really intense. Yeah. And I hadn't really seen a film before that respected the intensity of that relationship without making anyone evil. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wonder if that was part of why you wanted to make this movie. Well, definitely. Um, definitely. And actually what you just said was so interesting about how you shut down at that age. And I think, I mean, not to generalize, but I think a lot of teenage boys do tend to shut down. Like the parents ask them how their day was. They're like, fine. And they just go in their rooms. Yeah. And there's something about, <laughs> I think, particularly teenage girls with their mothers they do the opposite thing. They like over engage or they they sort of want to fight their way out through them or something. And uh, that relationship, I've, I don't feel like it's ever really been mined to the extent that it could be given that it's so interesting and rich and complex. And I wanted the, the core love story of the movie to be between a mother and a daughter, and that, that that really be the anchor for everything else that was happening. And one thing that Laurie Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan and, uh, we, we talked about and worked on was the fact that you're meeting them at the very worst moment for them in their relationship. And that there have been so many other moments before that where there's, you know, a lot of love and a lot of closeness. It's just that last year, that last bit of time when your child is about to go out into the world and you're not sure they're done cooking yet, that that it just creates some kind of chemical reaction between mothers and daughters. And in terms of the, the fighting and the hard parts of it, I just, I felt like the love wouldn't seem real if the conflict didn't seem real. If it, if it all seemed kind of glossed over, it would just feel fake. It wouldn't feel how these things actually are. When you think about it, and I'm sure you've thought about it a lot, what do you remember most about yourself at that age? Oh, I, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I mean, obviously I get the question all the time, like, were you Ladybird? And, um, and the, the thing was, I actually wasn't. I, I never made anyone call me by a different name. I didn't dye my hair bright red. I was much more of like a rule follower, um, people pleaser. I liked a gold star. I wasn't. Were you a good student? I was a good student, and I was, I was really into achievement, <laughs> in a pretty annoying way. Looking back on it, um, but the, the heart of the story, the conflict, and the and the love is all very close to my heart, and 
and and really speaks to something that I feel is true. I always say it rhymes with the truth, even if it's not literally the truth. And, um, you know, I think, God, when I was a teenager, I think the thing I remember was most the intensity of the emotions. It was like your your emotions on some sort of heightening drug. It's almost like the quality of emotions that sometimes you experience in dreams when you wake up and you realize that in your dream you were... <laughs> because of the dream it doesn't it almost doesn't have content other exactly. than the emotion like it's just the content is just a barely enough scaffolding to hold up this feeling that you're really having vividly, yeah, and I remember that 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 that, that emotional intensity there's this great scene that's kind of like um. Uh, where Ladybird, the the main character, makes out, and then uh, there's like a rocky at the top of the stairs moment in the middle of the street. Yes, 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 yes. She, she's um, she's just so pumped. Um, I, I my conception of that moment was probably, I, I mean, I wanted Lady Bird to be some combination of um. Precocious, but but also a late bloomer. Like the the, the, the she's not, she's not actually she's not sexually experienced in the movie, and she does not appear to be experienced with boyfriends. And I think it's very likely that that was her first real uh, kiss that that was intentional, <laughs> um, and not part of like a spin the bottle situation. Right. But um, and I I just wanted her to utterly feel this triumph about it. And I also I think um, something I I was interested in doing in the movie was um i think often teenage girls are shown waiting for a teenage boy to like them or looking at themselves and saying why am i so awkward and <laughs> and what i loved about the, what i loved about the character of ladybird is that she feels pretty damn good about herself and her weird dyed hair and her cast and she doesn't really waste any time feeling bad and also she does not wait for anyone to like her she decides who she likes and who she's going to try to try to make her boyfriend and um it kind of works, interestingly. But I think that... Um, but she's also, a, I mean, like, I, like a, this is probably meaner than it's intended, yeah. but she's kind of a jackass, right? She oh, has yes. that, like, yeah. foolish teenager quality but in the sense that those relationships that work, I mean, they also don't work. Totally. They don't work. Yeah, exactly. Because, because that's the truth of it. I mean, one thing I kind of wanted to do in the movie is both... I don't know, have my cake and eat it too, especially with the romance, that we're simultaneously completely inside Ladybird's romantic ideal idealization of these people and these relationships. And at the same time, the the movie knows it's not right, if that makes sense. So that we can go we can go all the way with the fact that she thinks she's in Titanic, but that actually she's not. She's in this other movie. But understanding what the fantasy is, and even if it's just a fantasy, that doesn't mean we don't take it seriously. Yeah, I, I think that movies about teenagers, and especially movies about teenage girls, seem like they come often in one of two flavors, one of which is a kind of high drama. Um, sure. You know, father's dying of cancer and the the boyfriend's moving away and, the, right, you know, right. all this and everything is played with great weight. Mm. Um, or, you know, occasionally, and this can be very effective, but occasionally with kind of like um, camp and a little bit right, of right. – and a little bit of – grotesquery about the kind of grotesquery of adolescence. Sure. Or like an archness around yeah. it. There's some irony in there. And I, it seems like you didn't want either of those things. No, I, I don't... Um, or I, if you did, you no. did a bad job. <laughs> yes, I, I failed. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I... I wanted the film to be funny, but I didn't want it to ever be in quotes in that way that sometimes I think... Mm, arch or more flip comedies they tend to it's almost like the actors are standing outside of the words they're saying and commenting on it in a way or or the, the film almost says these aren't these people and we are not these people but aren't they funny 
Does that make sense? And I always wanted it to be coming from the inside. Um, like, like that the actors are completely inside their characters and they're saying things with utter sincerity, which are funny because they're said with utter sincerity, not because there's any sort of meta quality to the way that they're doing it. And and then that the audience gets to feel like, oh, girl, I know. <laughs> I know how I know what's going on and I know what that guy's doing and I know what your mom's doing. And I'm just I feel for all of you. <laughs> One of the supporting characters mm. that was incredibly vivid to me uh, was a drama teacher. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he is, I guess, a um, a priest. Yes. Who has been brought in to direct the play, which has boys and girls in mm-hmm. it. It was a big deal because it's a Catholic school, right? Gender separated. Yeah. And he's he's played by Stephen Henderson, and there's this. Um, who is just a, as brilliant of an actor as anyone could ever be? Completely. Um, and also, I think, uh, and also, I think, uh, uh, an acting teacher to some extent in he his is. real life. Yeah, yeah, he is. He teaches at uh, Juilliard. Yeah, and he um, and folks who uh, folks who's for to whom his name is not immediately recognizable. He he's among other things been in like every. Uh, August Wilson Broadway production. Yeah, since the beginning, he's and, like yeah. he's like the foremost American interpreter of August Wilson. Yeah, and but, he's a true gift to you know American theater. And there's this moment where he's teaching the class, and he says, "We're we're going to do an exercise to access our emotions <laughs> to see who can cry first, which is exactly the kind of thing that a high school theater teacher would think is a good idea." <laughs> No. Like such I a, know. and then he just starts crying he because starts he's very sobbing. sad. Yeah, he's. Um, it's interesting. It's a moment that you know, without giving too much away, like that moment always. It's everybody laughs when that happens, and then later, it's not funny. Yeah. When you think about what it was, but it's an interesting thing. I think that it happens a few times in the movie where the thing that made you laugh the first time, the second time when it comes back around. It's very painful, and it's almost the reverse of um, whatever comedy is pain plus time. time. Or pain pain plus time equals comedy. In my movie, it's um, comedy plus time equals pain. (laughs) 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 It's like you laughed at it once, but you sure won't be laughing at it the next time it comes. So the movie is set in Sacramento, which is where you're from. Yeah, that's my hometown. My experiences with Sacramento... Are gold mining? It the yes, is it? I was going to say people... Junior State of America. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We go to a lot of Junior State of America conferences. To yeah, do, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. to do debate competitions. Yeah, because it's the capital. You know? Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah, no, you like you go and you like meet your state legislator and they like yeah. tour you around uh-huh. the assembly yeah. and like you you catch a glimpse of Gray Davis. Yeah, Gray Davis, sure. Right, yeah. um, uh, Pete Wilson, maybe. Totally. Um, um, but it's. It, it strikes me there's a there's a moment in the movie where someone describes it as the Midwest of California. <laughs> yes. Which is like sort of right but like mm-hmm. there's something weird about the way that it both feels like an idyllic small town and a sunbaked nightmare at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean in, in a way that line the Midwest of California uh, <laughs> I was actually I showed the movie in Sacramento um, last Sunday. And it was incredibly moving and everyone was there, like everyone I've known my whole life. My second grade teacher was there. All my friends from growing up, like my parents, their friends. The mayor was there. The newscaster I liked did the Q&A. Like it was a, it was an incredible. It was a real. Oh, my and, God. Now all I care about is doing an event with Dennis Richmond from KTVU. <laughs> yeah, exactly. God. It's a it was a very it's a wonderful life type of a moment. Uh, and and that line um, got a big laugh, luckily. Um, but I mean, I wrote it sort of out of the fa- part of partly out of the fact of you know it is the top of the agricultural valley, and I think that's something that people always forget about California. And it, it's sort of that combination of the agricultural, slightly not conservative politically, but more there's more of a value placed on older school kind of manners and taking care of 
your community in a, in a very specific way that feels slightly of an older generation to me that felt very similar when I was in the Midwest. Um, I felt right at home. I was like, oh, this is, I know what this is. This is, this is like Sacramento. And I think that, you know, most people know about it or when they talk about people say, oh, I went to Sacramento for my fourth grade trip to go to Sutter's Fort, which was the fort established in Sacramento and to fake pan for gold um, mm-hmm. because at the Wells Fargo Bank downtown, they have a, a gold panning station, I guess, But uh, which I did a ton of. But um, Maybe visit a Miwok village. Yeah, exactly. No. It's funny. I guess you do. I don't know if you did. The, we did California history in fourth grade. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And you'd spend all this time on um, the missions, mm-hmm. all the missions you had to build dioramas of the missions. Um, a lot of Adobe talk. Yeah, so much Adobe talk. And there was I would always... say Adobe is only second to pemmican in terms of what you are going to be talking about. I'd say the boiled <laughs> and smashed acorns. Yeah, totally. Then Adobe. Adobe. And all yeah. other California topics. Yeah, yeah. It was um, so so many dioramas in elementary school. I really honestly, it was a big, <laughs> it was a very big part of it. Anyway, so we spent, um, I guess in fourth grade, we spent... Mostly the entire year preparing um, historical characters who would have come through Sutter's Fort. You know, obviously we didn't do this, but our mothers helped us. We would ma- we made historically accurate um, costumes. Um, this all took a very long time, and then everybody got in covered wagons, and we went from our elementary school all the way downtown, and then we stayed in Sutter's Fort that night, and we all slept outside. I, I remember we had to make our own food, and one of it, you had to kill a chicken and then de-gut it. You had to gut a chicken? Yeah, I remember. I, I just w- I just had to sleep on a boat and learn some <laughs> sailor songs no, about Clutha in San Francisco. Sacramento is too real. Yeah, but I, had, I put my hand into the cavity of a chicken and pulled out its innards and put oh, it on wow. the thing. And I don't know why I say all of this, except for the fact that Sacramento is so deeply embedded in who I am. And I felt like I lived as an original California settler for an entire year when I was nine. I don't know. It's even though I live in New York now, I just all of that is really is really part of me. Right. I, I think the movie is, you know, it's about our relationship with home in a more complex and rich way than most movies about adolescence and home, you know, I think a lot of people as adolescents have the feeling like I got to get out of here. Yeah. No, that's true. And Lady Bird has that feeling. I mean, we heard that scene where she says, I, I want to go to New York or somewhere where writers live in the woods, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, like exactly yeah. the right level of sophistication of understanding of the world outside of right. where you live. But which she says, at least Connecticut or New Hampshire, where like writers live in the woods, just places she's never been. She doesn't know if that's true. It's just a thing she's saying. But like there are, uh, you know, it's so obvious that, you know, the, the depth of her connection to where she's from right. is so clear. Yeah. And I imagine that must reflect the depth of your connection. Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I, I the opening of the film, actually, they're listening to the John Steinbeck Grapes of Wrath. And, uh, you know, Steinbeck is one of those, I think of him as California writer, really, um, that, you know, her and her mother are listening to the, the book on tape checked out from the public library of the Grapes of Wrath. And they're weeping at the end of it because it's so incredibly moving. And so much of the history of of you know the second wave of immigration to California, what were Dust Bowl farmers, and that they came in incredible poverty to try to make a better life for themselves in California, and how much of that was based in agriculture and and the hope of what that was. And I would say, you know, probably that's what the McPherson family came from. Probably that was what you know, great grandfather, grandfather came, that that's how they came uh, to California and that they would cry and they would share this moment and then immediately she would say I want to leave I hate it here <laughs> after and just be a complete brat about the whole thing um but that you know both are true I just think as a teenager you always feel like life is happening another somewhere else and it's not happening to you and you've just got to go get to the where the place that life is 
And then you get there and you realize, oh, no, there is no place where li- life was happening and it's not. But it's, it's somehow a revelation you have to learn for yourself. We'll continue my conversation with Greta Gerwig after a short break. Don't go anywhere. Still to come, Golden Globe-nominated actress and acclaimed writer-director Greta Gerwig on the importance of writing the phrase helotite into the script of a major motion picture. For real, she came out the cut with that one. Is Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional stage stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. Hey, this is David Green. I hope you'll start your day tomorrow with Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR. The most important details about the biggest stories sized to fit into your morning routine. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning. You can find it on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Greta Gerwig. She's best known as an actress. She wrote and directed the new film Lady Bird. It's out now. There are some things in this movie that were so specific that I was like almost overwhelmed by them. Mm. I think there's a moment where a character, sort of possible love interest of Lady Bird's, she she asks him a question and says, I don't remember what the prompt is, but he just goes, uh, yeah, it's helotite. Yeah, right, right, helotite, and sure. When he <laughs> said something was helotite, like, I didn't even know I was capable of that level of mm. emotional connection with a slang <laughs> phrase. Yeah. But I was, yeah. it felt like my head was going to explode from identification. <laughs> this jerky 16-year-old saying something. Yeah. Helotite. Yeah. Helotite, that's helotite. Um, no, there's a lot of details that, there's a there, that same character has this other thing where she, she the Lady Bird is trying to look cool in front of him, so she's gonna smoke a clove, and he says, you know, don't cloves suck or something, and then he says, um, well they have fiberglass, and she's like, oh, and then I was I was actually working with the the man who made the music, the genius John Bryan, and his, and we'd watch the scene over and over a million times, and he's working on the music, and um. And then his sound engineer turned to me and he was like, you know what? I remember hearing that Cloves had fiberglass, too. What is that? Did we all just, where did we hear that from? And then from inside, you know, uh, the other room, somebody yelled, I remember the fiberglass rumor. Is there actually fiberglass in Cloves? And this was just like kept going. And it was, um, I I don't know, it was stored somewhere in my memory, this detail of like kids telling each other there there was fiberglass and cloves and helotite. I mean, I don't know. I think that's just how my my brain works. I kind of tend to hone in on details and then I bring them out later. I don't think I had ever seen a movie as a 36-year-old now. Mm-hmm. Like, I th- I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I, under- I felt like I understood emotionally the way that baby boomers feel about Every movie that's been released in the past forty years, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like I had never had that adult feeling of resonance with my adolescence in a movie so vividly. Right. Yes, that's interesting. No, it's. Um... I was like, is this what is this why people like the big chill? Oh, <laughs> like, right. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> right? Maybe I, I that get, like... feels really true. Yeah. 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 Um, no, it's. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's an. It, it's. I mean, one of my favorite things about the movie, is, in a way, is, is that it does connect with uh, all these different ages very specifically. And, you know, I think teenagers who are teenagers now connect with this vivid emotional experience that's still t- completely true. You know, people who are in their 20s or 30s connect with it as almost like a looking back quality. And then 
you know, people who are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, it's like they're connecting with it as parents and as, you know, some people, even grandparents of of watching watching what it is. But it's it's interesting because for some reason it does. There's lots of points of connections generationally. And I did that deliberately with the hope that it would connect that way. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm glad that it seems to. Well, Greta Gerwig, thank you so much thank for coming and on the show. I I love the movie so much, and I'm so uh, I'm so grateful to have gotten to get to talk to you. About yeah, it. it was really wonderful. Greta Gerwig, her movie Lady Bird is in theaters now. Honestly, I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. It is a beautiful, hilarious movie. Drop what you're doing. Go to a theater. Sit in front of the box office until they sell you a ticket. You will not regret it. Sacramento should be proud of Greta Gerwig. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Lee Unkrich. For over 20 years now, he's been one of the leading creative voices at Pixar. He worked on Toy Story, Finding Nemo, A Bug's Life, a bunch more. He directed Toy Story 3, probably the darkest and, for me, maybe the most affecting of the movies in that series. Now he's directed Pixar's new movie, Coco. It's set in Mexico, and it's a story wrapped up in the Mexican Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. The film's protagonist is a 12-year-old boy named Miguel. He comes from a family who, for generations, have banned music after his great-great-grandfather abandoned his wife and child to become a singer. Miguel's journey leads him to the land of the dead, using breathtaking visuals and performances from a ton of amazing actors like Gael Garcia Bernal and Benjamin Bratt. Coco is a story about love, loss, and how we hold our families in our hearts. And by now, I guess this should almost go without saying when you're talking about a Pixar movie, but you don't have to be a kid like Miguel to fall in love with it. Let's take a listen to a clip from the beginning of the film. In this scene, Miguel, who is voiced by Anthony Gonzalez, is in his hometown's central plaza, and he's shining the shoes of a mariachi, a local musician, played by stand-up comedian Lombardo Boyer. Ah, mira, mira, they're setting up for tonight, the music competition for Dia de Muertos. You want to be like your hero? You should sign up. Uh-uh, my family would freak. Look, if you're too scared, then, well, have fun making shoes. Come on, what did De La Cruz always say? Seize your moment? Show me what you got, muchacho. I'll be your first audience. Miguel! <gasps> ah! Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um, uh, you leave my hands on alone. Doña, please. I was just getting a shine. <gasps> I know your tricks, mariachi. What did he say to you? He was just showing me his guitar. <gasps> Shame on you! Uh, my grandson is a sweet little angelito, querido cielito. He wants no part of your music, mariachi. You keep away from him. <laughs> Leon Critch, welcome to Bullseye. It is so great to be back, Jesse. Nice to see you again. Congratulations on making another children's movie about death. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is? I mean, you have made, you've had sole directing credit on two movies, Toy Story 3 and this one. And both of them are about essentially love and death. Well, isn't that what life's about? Yeah, I guess. I mean, some movies are about like, what if a panda could do karate? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, you know, I didn't. I didn't know what this movie was going to be about. And, and I, it, you know, death is a part of this, of course, because it's set against the Mexican celebration of Dia de Muertos. But other than death just being part of the story, it's it's really about family, which is what the, the celebration is about. I mean, one of the things I'm so proud of with this film is that I, I think most people in the world outside of Mexico don't really understand what Dia de Muertos is all about. They just think of it as the Mexican Halloween. And it makes sense why they think that because it falls in close proximity to Halloween and there's skeletons. And so it seems Halloween-y, but it actually has nothing to do with it. And um you know, I think one thing that we're doing with this film that hopefully is a great service is really educating people around the planet about what this beautiful tradition is really about, which is about family and life and passing along memories and kind of keeping people's memories alive. How did the movie end up being about Dia de los Muertos? 
I had long been interested in Dia de Muertos. I grew up in Ohio, but I went to USC undergrad. So I lived in LA for nine years and, and I was kind of plugged into the underground art scene at the time and, and you know, would go to the Jesus de la Luz gallery. It used to be on Melrose. I don't know where it is now. I think it's still somewhere. But they were always really embracing the, the iconography and imagery of Dia de Muertos. But it really was a shallow kind of appreciation. It really just had to do with folk art. And um, my fascination with the the same thing a lot of people are fascinated by, which is this odd juxtaposition of skeletons and the idea of death, but with music and color and celebration. And, and The aesthetics are really vivid. I mean, I have similar memories from my own childhood at La Raza Graphics in San Francisco or the Mission Cultural Center, um, which were both near where I grew up. I think where Benjamin Brack came, comes from, too. But they're both like you know, whatever your depth of knowledge may be, the aesthetics are so vivid and unmistakable that, you know, I think that's how they ended up in the beginning of that James Bond movie, which is like purely aesthetic almost. Exactly. Uh, Though, interestingly, in their case, they so many people started to go to Mexico assuming that that was a real thing, that, that <laughs> yeah. Mex- the city, Mexico City is now putting on a big celebration that, that never existed before Spectre came out. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a Dia de Muertos parade right. that they invented just because they thought it would look cool. <laughs> But now, Which, it, to be fair, it does look cool. It does. And now they're actually doing something <laughs> yeah. like that because people expected to see it. Um, so anyway, my, my first uh, attraction was purely aesthetic. And um, that's where it just kind of stayed for many, many years. But uh, after I finished Toy Story 3, I was kicking around different ideas, trying to figure out what to do next at Pixar. And one thing that popped into my head was the idea of doing something set against Dia de Muertos. And at the time, it seemed great because it was animation friendly. We're always looking for a story that can really only be told using animation. But it also, to me, seemed unique. When I look back at the entire history of cinema, both live action and animation, I there, there was really no story that was just completely set in the world of Dia de Muertos. There was a, a movie with Albert Finney called Under the Volcano that had kind of elements of it. And Sergei Eisenstein had a famous unfinished film that he shot down in Mexico um, during the celebration. But there was nothing else. And so uh, that ticked off the box for me of being unique and, and being uh, special and interesting. And um, I, I just started doing a lot of research, a deep research into learning more about the traditions. And um, the more I read, the more I realized that we had the potential to not only make a really cool-looking movie, but to make a movie that would be really, really meaningful and could be universal uh, to people all over the world. Because, um, of course, there was a concern, like, are, are we making a film that only people in Mexico are going to be interested in? But um, hopefully, you know, we we haven't released the movie around the world yet, but we really think that the, the themes are so kind of universal that uh, I think, I mean, we all have families. We all, you know, have, some of us have good families, some of us have bad families. They're all things that we have to deal with. And we all wonder about what our legacy is going to be and how we're going to be remembered. And so, um, anyway, I'll, you know, I... I at a certain point, just realized that we had the potential to make a really entertaining and really emotional film. Did the meaning of the story, did the things that you were writing about, and I understand that the way that Pixar works is very collaborative, did they change over the course of the years that you worked on the movie? They did. That that was pretty interesting. At the very beginning, the first thing that I pitched to John Lasseter and then developed was a very a completely different story than what we ended up with. Um, it still had a young boy as the main character, but he was uh, uh, an American boy with an American father, and he had had a, a Mexican mother who had passed away before the story began. And in the story, the father was taking this boy down to Mexico to, to meet his Mexican family for the first time and to be there for Dia de Muertos. And the boy ended up going on this kind of unexpected journey into the land of the dead. And ultimately, it was a story about him learning to say goodbye to his mom and to deal with his grief, which I know sounds heavy for a, a Pixar film. And there were aspects of it that were probably too <laughs> heavy. heavy. For a, what, is, what constitutes <laughs> heavy for a Pixar film? Um, there are Bergman <laughs> movies that are light for a Pixar film. Uh, but, but the interesting thing, the thing that happened after quite a bit of – I mean, we, we developed a whole story line um, – uh, that we had scripted and I had pitched. But one day I woke up and realized that we were telling a story that was completely antithetical to what Dia de Muertos is all about. We were telling a story from a Western point of view, which made sense because, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio. I'm Jewish. I'm not Latino. 
And uh, I, we were telling a story about letting go of grief and saying goodbye. And Dia de Muertos is the complete opposite. It's about never saying goodbye. It's about this obligation that we have to remember our loved ones and to pass their stories along and to always keep them in our hearts. And so at that point, we just scraped the whole thing down to the studs and started over again. And, and at that point, we had already been down to Mexico for a bunch of uh, research trips. And I had spent a lot of time with Mexican families. And um, I, I then had the confidence to tell the story not as an outsider about Mexico, but about a family in Mexico. Did it make you think about the way that you relate to the people in your family that you've lost? Yeah. Well, it's, it made me think about making sure that their stories were passed on. I, I was very, very close to my grandmother. I don't know if we talked about this when we talked about Toy Story 3 because the, the last time I saw her ended up being a catalyst for how I kind of shot the end of Toy Story 3 when Woody's looking at the toys for the last time. But my grandmother was very uh, supportive of me creatively growing up. She always uh, made sure that I you know, got to my play practices and, and everything that, that extracurricular that was important to me that I was passionate about. She made sure it could happen because my mom was a single mom and she, you know, was working so she couldn't be there to support me. Uh, so my grandmother was very close and um, it's become really important to me to make sure that my kids know about as much about her as possible because I have photo albums and boxes full of family photos and I know who some of the people are in the photos but I don't know all of them. And even the people I know, I don't really know much about them other than their names. And that, you know, how sad to think that you're remembered because somebody knows who your name, what your name is and how you relate to the family. And that's the end of it, rather than knowing whether you were kind or not or, or you know, what your favorite foods were, or just like personal specific things that were important to you that kind of guided how you lived your life. I think it's important that those get passed on. Um, otherwise, you know, people have the possibility of dying this final death, which is kind of what we explore in the movie, which is a very real thing we learned in our research, this notion that we're all capable of three deaths. We die when our heart stops beating. We die a second time when we're buried and nobody can ever see us again. And then there's the potential for this third and final death when there's nobody left who remembers you, who knew you, who can tell your stories, and then you die a final death. And that's really kind of the end of your existence. And uh, once I heard that story about this belief as being part of Dia de Muertos, um, that was the moment where we really, I think, found the foundation of our film. Um, I want to ask you about this dog in the movie. Dante. Uh, his name is Dante. He is a, a Shola, which is like a kind of hairless dog that yes. is a, a primitive breed that is very popular in Mexico. You don't see that often. I get very excited when I see one. They're really here cool. in California. They're so cool. They're just the coolest. Yeah, I've I've been lucky enough to be friends with a couple of them, and oh, that's thought awesome. they were so great. I think a lot of people have an expectation for a, an animated family or children's film that there is a goofy sidekick, and often that manifests itself as a talking animal that makes wise cracks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's that can be fine. Uh, you know, there are great Disney films that I grew up watching that follow that pattern. And, you know, if you want to send a comedy genius and Nettie Murphy or Robin Williams into a booth and have him say some funny stuff, I'm not going to stop anybody. Um, this is a dog that is really funny and never talks. This is specifically a not. This is a dog. He's a dog. The dog is a dog. I mean, he in some ways is a spiritual dog. Um, like a magical dog, but he is a dog. And I guess I wonder, at what point did you decide this dog is going to be a dog that acts like a dog? Well, he was never going to talk. That was never even on the table. Um, Why not? It just wasn't the tone of the film that we wanted to make. I mean, I don't know who he'd be talking to. Would he be talking to Miguel? Then yeah, you're in a weird world buddies. where he's like, animals he's... talk to people. Well, you're in a weird world where uh, people <laughs> walk across paper bridges into the. I mean, I don't know. I guess I feel like <laughs> with a lot of the movies we make, there are already elements that are fantastical. Whether you're under the ocean and fish are talking, or you're in a world of monsters, you have things that are going to be weird, and it's important to find a balance to that. And in the case of this movie, I knew we were telling this kind of heartfelt story. And so we already have the artifice of it being animation, which I have to overcome. I have to get the audience to forget that they're watching animation and get invested in the characters and the story. And, and to, to my taste, that means just being as emotionally truthful as possible. And so even though there's a lot of comedy in this movie and there's a lot of 
goofy stuff. It's all rooted in character. And and I guess to have Dante talk would have been just a weird left field thing to be grafting onto the movie. More with Lee Unkrich after a quick break. When we come back, we'll finally get to the bottom of Lee's time working on Silk Stockings, the USA Network's beloved erotic police work classic. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bullseye. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with Lee Unkrich in a second, but first... Bullseye is not the only culture podcast from MaximumFun.org. I have been having a really great time lately listening to our new movie show, Who Shot Ya? It is fun and fast and full of actual insight. I mean, that is something that we work really hard on on our shows is that just because they are fun and funny doesn't mean they aren't actual insightful analysis of popular culture. And Who Shot Ya? is no exception. You can grab it wherever you get your podcasts in the podcast app on your phone or from Apple Podcasts or iTunes or even on the web. Just search for Who Shot Ya. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Lee Unkrich directed the new Disney and Pixar movie Coco. It's in theaters this week. Um, let's hear another clip from Coco. And my guest is Lee Ungrich. He's the director of Coco, the new Pixar film. Miguel is the young boy who is the protagonist of the movie. And he's deeply passionate about music, has a family that uh, won't let him pursue it. And his hero is a guy who is the greatest musician of all time, at least as far as the folks who live in his town are concerned, a singer named Ernesto de la Cruz. And uh, Miguel goes into the land of the dead, and he finds that there is a connection between him and De La Cruz. And in this scene, he's in the land of the dead. He's singing, and he meets his hero. And the world is me familia, for this music is my language, and the world is me familia. This music is my language. <laughs> Are you all right, Nino? It, it's you. You you are that boy, the, the one who came from the land of the living. You know about me? <laughs> you are all anyone has been talking about. Why have you come here? I'm Miguel. Your, your great-great-grandson. I have a great-great-grandson? Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> How do you cast a voice for a little boy who is Mexican and speaking in English and has to sound it has to sound like a little boy it has to read in some way as having some connect like it animated voices even even in a relatively non-zany film like this one have a sort of grand sense to them. You know, there's a there's a bigger performative element. There's a liveliness to them because you the actor's face is not literally represented. Um, how do you find somebody for that, especially when you're making a movie over the course of six years? When I was in film school, I had a directing teacher named Eddie Dimitrick. He was one of the kind of blacklisted Hollywood folks back in the day. Um, and uh, he was taking questions from the students, and at the time I was about to make my first little short film that had kids in it. It was a cast of only children. And I asked him for his advice about working with kids, and he said, don't. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, despite that advice, I've continued to make projects that have kids in them somehow. Um, on Coco, Miguel is I – and mean, he's the main character of the movie. He's in practically every scene of the entire film. Um, and so we knew it was going to be a Herculean task to find the kid to play him. Um, 
for a lot of reasons. One, you know, I needed him to be Latino because I committed to having an all Latino cast on this film. Um, he needed to be of a certain age. The character's 12. But to your point, it takes so many years to make these films that I couldn't cast him. I couldn't try to find the kid too early because I would run the risk of his voice changing while we were making the movie. He needed to be able to sing. And most importantly, he needed to be able to act. It's really hard to find kids who can give a, a, a natural performance and have the maturity to be in a rec you know, recording session for hours at a time working and, and having kind of focus. Did you ever think, like, I'm just going to bring in the Latina Pamela Adlon <laughs> to just to just do a kid voice? I don't, well, I, I certainly didn't want to do the, the, the Bart Simpson thing, yeah, and have a, an adult do a kid's voice. Uh, again, to my point of, like, this needs to be real. <laughs> it needs to feel like it's, you know, this is a real kid. So we, I auditioned hundreds and hundreds of kids all over the United States and in Mexico. And at the same time, we were working, when we're making our films and creating the story reels, which are kind of the rough draft temporary version of the movie, we usually just have people at Pixar do the voices for all the characters till we've cast them. Um, but for Miguel, I didn't want to have an adult doing them. So we found a local kid up in the Bay Area um, named Emilio Fuentes who was awesome and did a great job as we were kind of working out the story. But at a certain point, his voice changed as we knew it probably would. And so we continued to use him as long as we could. We were pitch shifting his voice. But he finally got to the point where we just couldn't do it anymore. So I needed to find a new kid to do Scratch until we could find our, our real Miguel. And so we put out a whole other casting call just for kids to do Scratch. And that was when uh, Anthony Gonzalez walked into our lives. He's this amazing kid. He was 10 years old when I first met him. He lives in Los Angeles. He lives down by USC, interestingly. And he's been singing and performing mariachi music since he was like two years old. His yeah, mother would take him blow. to – I mean this kid can sing he's, for he's real. A, he is amazing. And when we were first auditioning him, we didn't yet know – how much Miguel was going to have to sing in the movie. So it wasn't important that I found, found a kid who could sing. But at his audition, just on his own, even though we didn't ask him to, at the end of the audition, he asked if he could sing a song for us. And he had brought a CD. And for some bizarre reason, we didn't have a CD player in the recording <laughs> booth we were in. So he said, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just sing it anyway. And he stood there and he sang like this 10-minute a cappella, beautiful, beautiful song in Spanish. And um, I, I just, I, I knew in my heart we had, we had found our Miguel. It was a little while before we committed to him. Um, but he, I mean, this kid is just absolutely amazing. And you're going to be seeing more of him. He's just shot a, a live action film that I think is going to be something really special. You worked before you worked at Pixar, where you've worked since, what, 1994 or something like that? Yeah, 94 I started at Pixar. Before you worked at Pixar, you worked as you're not gonna drag this an up, are you? editor. <laughs> um, I have a clip here I want to play. Oh, no. So you worked on some made-for-TV movies. One was called Betrayed by Love. One was called Separated by Murder. Yes. And you also worked as an editor on some television crime dramas, including Silk Stockings. Yes. Uh, which fans of uh, USA Late Night uh, in the early 1990s and late 1980s will remember. You directed an episode of Silk Stockings. Silk Stockings was an erotic crime thriller program. Or a steamy crime thriller program. I don't know if it – I don't remember that it had actual nudity on it. Um, I don't know where this is all going, but I'm getting a funny feeling in my tummy. Uh, and uh, you directed an episode of the show called Community Service. So in this episode that we're about to hear, Lee, uh, a judge is accused of receiving sexual favors from the wives of criminals. <laughs> and in this scene, the detective investigates a crime scene. Oh, man. Huh. So what do you think? Late 20s, early 30s? Yeah, probably. So let's see. Shot three times. I'm guessing small caliber handgun. The desk clerk said she checked in alone under the name of Kelly. He fell asleep, so he doesn't know if she had any visitors or not. Look at that. Expensive jewelry. Yeah. Designer clothes. What do you think, a high-class pro? Maybe she had an unhappy customer. Mm -hmm. No. Most of the high-end girls stick to their four-star hotels. Hey, I was wrong. Her name is Susan Kimper. She lived in Boca. Pretty exclusive neighborhood. She wasn't making a living on her back. I wonder what she was doing here. <laughs> that scene, by the way, that's like 75 seconds of consecutive exposition. <laughs> 
I'll point out that I didn't write that. <laughs> Very competently written for the type of thing that it is. Yes. Well, you know, it was a great experience. I actually directed that episode in the middle of editing Toy Story. So really, yeah, I was. So you were already at Pixar. I was already at Pixar, and um, they had promised me an opportunity to direct an episode. So when I started working on Toy Story, I let them know that there was going to come a time where I was going to have to duck down to San Diego to go shoot this episode of Silk Stockings, which I I did. So I was right in the middle of Woz and Buddy Land. Did you apply for? Did I just say Woz and Buddy? Yeah. Wow. Did you apply for your job at Pixar in 1994 with like a reel of stuff you had cut for Silk Stockings? No, zero. I got the job at Pixar because um, right when I was finishing college at USC Film School, the Avid non nonlinear digital editing system was first coming into being. And, and Avid had set up a lab at USC where they could not only let students use it, but train film editors because they were trying to get them to switch over to cutting digitally. And so I just took the opportunity to learn it inside and out. And then it, that ended up like really helping me at the beginning of my career. I got a job um, as an assistant editor on the very first TV show that cut on Avid, which was Renegade, which was a, a sister program to Silk Stockings with Lorenzo Lamas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I rose up through the ranks there really quickly and started editing. And um, I got the job at Pixar because Pixar was doing this groundbreaking thing of making the very the world's first digital movie. And they didn't want to use any old tech on it. They didn't want to cut it traditionally on film, which is how every animated film had been cut prior to Toy Story. And so they reached out to Avid and Avid gave me their name, uh, gave my name to them. And uh, I went up for what was supposed to be just a four to six week job helping them get ready for a screening with Jeffrey Katzenberg. And then now it's been twenty, almost 25 years that I've been with them. What did you think when you got there? Well, I had already been a huge fan of John Lasseter's short films at Pixar. I'd seen them all when I was still a film student. Um, I had projected them and, and was, I mean, it was like, I remember it being an earth-shattering moment when I first saw Luxo Jr. Like, I'd just never seen anything like that. That's the one with the angle poise uh uh, the lamp and the ball dancing yeah, around. That's yeah, I, become... mean, I remember seeing that at a, at a Spike and Mike or something when I was a kid. Yeah. So I was so blown away by that and Tin Toy and Knick Knack. And so I knew who John was. I knew what Pixar was. And I had heard rumor that they were doing their first feature. So when I got the phone call, I, I just jumped at the opportunity mostly because I just wanted to go up and see, like, how, like, how do you make movies like that? Like, I, I didn't even have a conception about how something so magical could be created by people. And um, it was only after I got there that I saw that they were really doing something really special. Lee Ungers, thank you so much for taking all this time to come back and be on Bullseye. It's always good to see you. I love talking to you. This has been awesome. Lee Ungrich. His movie Coco is in theaters all over the country this week. It's already the highest grossing animated film in Mexican history. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a little cultural recommendation for me. It's called The Outshot. So, E.B. White's pig got sick. Not Wilbur, the uh, radiant, terrific, humble, some pig from Charlotte's Web. A regular pig, a real pig, on White's farm in Maine. He wrote about it in an essay in 1948. It's called The Death of a Pig. White was a gentleman farmer in Maine. His real livelihood was writing for The New Yorker and writing those children's books. But he was a farmer, nonetheless, with animals to tend and machines to fix in an old farmhouse with wood stoves to keep burning. And one day his pig got sick. It wouldn't eat. White says it was was stopped up. Now, this pig wasn't a pet. It was livestock. It was tomorrow's bacon. White knew what was coming for the pig. He writes, The scheme of buying a spring pig in blossom time, feeding it through summer and fall, and butchering it when the solid cold weather arrives, is a familiar scheme to me and follows an antique pattern. But when the pig got sick before it could be slaughtered, it broke the rules. Farming follows a cycle. The seasons are mirrored by birth, life, and death. It's true with animals. It's true with plants. And there's comfort in the inexorability of the cycle. It's why you can care for an animal that you plan to kill. It's natural and it's ordered. It's how it works, the world continuing on its path. 
as White writes about slaughtering animals, the murder being premeditated is in the first degree, but it's quick and skillful, and the smoked bacon and ham provide a ceremonial ending whose fitness is seldom questioned. But where's the comfort when the wheels of the world stop turning right? What do you do when, as White puts it, one of the actors goes up in his lines and the whole performance stumbles and halts? That pig getting sick, it inverts everything. Everything is upside down. All of a sudden, White's life is a tragic comedy. All of a sudden, every resource he has is dedicated to tricking a pig, the one animal that will eat anything, into eating, well, anything. Instead of man with dominion over beasts sharing his bounty with a grateful creature, it's just this hapless dope and is even more hapless dachshund, desperately flailing in the mud. We're so used to power in our lives, the power of our human brains and our tools and medicine and everything else, the power to control our self-awareness, our fear of death and our knowledge of our own shortcomings. But when you have a tube in a pig's butt trying to clear it out, there is no dignity. You are in the muck, and it probably won't work, and there's F all you can do about it. Here's White. Once having given a pig an enema, there's no turning back, no chance of resuming one of life's more stereotyped roles. The pig's lot and mine were inextricably bound now, as though the rubber tube were the silver cord. From then until the time of his death, I held the pig steadily in the bowl of my mind. The task of trying to deliver him from his misery became a strong obsession. His suffering soon became the embodiment of all earthly wretchedness. If you've read his essays or The Trumpet of the Swan or even The Elements of Style, you won't be surprised to learn how nimble White is at managing the telling of this tragic comedy. He looks straight at the abyss of death, but he also looks sideways at it. He understands that death is absurd because it's so much bigger than any of us. It can't help but be ridiculous. It's, it's a rule of nature so powerful that it can break the rules of nature. And so there is this dumb man trying to fix a pig with a butt tube and a dumb old dog making himself worse than useless. He never missed a chance to visit the pig with me, White says about Fred, it's the dachshund. And he made many professional calls on his own. You could see him down there at all hours, his white face parting the grass along the fence as he wobbled and stumbled about, his stethoscope dangling, a happy quack writing his villainous prescriptions and grinning his corrosive grin. I don't know if you've ever heard this brilliant insight I'm about to drop, but... It's funny because it's true. By the time the vet gets there, his wife, actually, gets the best line. She's handing him equipment. And as he passes his hand over the pig's distended stomach, the pig cries out a little. Poor piggledy-wiggledy, says the wife. I guess maybe rueful is the word for these little acknowledgments of the absurdity of life and death. When we slid the body into the grave, we were both shaken to the core, writes White of he and his dog. The loss we felt was not the loss of Ham, but the loss of a pig. He'd evidently become precious to me, not that he represented a distant nourishment in a hungry time, but that he had suffered in a suffering world. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Just recently, somebody turned on a giant hose from like a truck or something and named it at the park. We don't know what's going on. If you know what's going on with that giant hose, let us know. Just, I don't know, hosing down a century of accumulated urine, I guess. 
show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Thanks to Jesus Ambrosio for helping this week. Jesus is our new production fellow. Congratulations, Jesus, and welcome to the team. Our senior producer at MaximumFun.org is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team. It's provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. Go Team have a brand new record on the way and a single out. Keep an eye out for those. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We'll share all of our interviews with you there, some stupid internet stuff. And also, I posted a photo of last week's guest, Paul Reiser, flipping me the bird while I took his picture. You know, it's capturing those kind of tender moments that I like to think makes me a real photographer. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 